1: Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome to the We Get Real AF podcast, where we talk high tech with cool women. The world of fintech still remains pretty obscure to the vast majority, Sue and me included. It's much more than a new buzzword, but what does it mean? How does it affect our daily lives and how will it change the future of finance as a whole? We're just as curious as you are. Here to offer some clarity and perspective is successful fintech entrepreneur, Claire Flynn Levy, founder of Essentia Analytics, a behavioral data analytics service that helps professional investors make better investment decisions. Claire, welcome to WeGraph. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
2: Um, Sure, well, I spent the first 10 years of my career as a technology fund manager, picking tech stocks in the market, Um, and I spent the second 10 years making technology that helps fund managers do better at that job. Uh, I'm now the founder and CEO, as you mentioned, of Essentia Analytics, and we're a behavioral analytics software company that uses technology to help professional fund managers Mitigate their own behavioral biases and therefore uh, make measurably better decisions. I spent the last twenty-five years living in London and now live in Connecticut with my husband and two sons.
1: Awesome! Let's take a deeper dive into your into your background a little bit. Talk about your transition from a fund manager to fintech entrepreneur uh, because I think that's really interesting.
2: Sure, I. I actually started my move to entrepreneurship when I was still a fund manager, as it happens. I launched my own hedge fund back in March of 2001 and my timing was really bad. Maybe not as bad as launching in March of 2020, uh, but March of 2001 was the aftermath of the internet bubble bursting and of 9-11. And the dynamics of the market changed abruptly. Um, And that change went on for, you know, more than a short period of time. So the way that I had been making money was no longer working and I was running very hard just to stay in one place performance wise. And I couldn't figure out what it was that I should be doing differently. So, you know, in the absence of a better idea, I just worked more. I worked harder and I worked longer. And then I remember very clearly on the day of my 30th birthday Looking in the mirror and thinking, "Isn't doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result the definition of insanity?" (laughs) That's what I was doing, and you know this is crazy. Um, My return on energy expended, which is how I look at it, was negative as far as I could tell, and it was going lower because I was exhausted. Um, And if that was a stock, you would be talking about return on capital, but if that was negative and going lower, you would be a seller of the stock. And here I was where
1: this was my life we're
2: talking about and, you know, my own energy, and that's my my most precious commodity. So I, I decided that if I couldn't see clearly what it was that I should be doing differently to get a better result, and if I didn't have a, a data-driven feedback loop, as opposed to a bunch of people's opinions um, about what I was doing well and what I was not doing well in making investment decisions, then Maybe I shouldn't be investing my energy in a job that is making investment decisions all day, every day. You know, Maybe that's futile. Um, so it was at that point that I, I went native into software and I, I uh, closed my fund and I joined an existing software company that made portfolio management systems for fund managers on the basis that I would have a competitive advantage at that because Not only have I been analyzing software companies for many years, but I understood the customer better than anyone else because I was the customer. And I I think one of the things I learned during that period was that I wasn't the only one who had this problem. You know, this lack of a data-driven feedback loop was something that affected every fund manager. None of them had the analytics that they wanted in order to understand the connection between the actions that they were taking and the, the performance that they were actually getting out of it. And if you could answer that question, that was a holy grail. And so that's why I ultimately started Essentia, to provide other people with that thing that I didn't have, you know, that, that uh, to me, not having it questioned the entire purpose of the job. You know, for them, they're, they're still doing that job. They need this, you know, they need to solve this problem themselves if they want to keep doing it.
0: I have a question about, I'm looking at your website, Claire, and, you know, this behavioral analytics. For those of us who are not deep into the world of investment and and fund management and, and, you know, what kinds of behaviors are you gathering analytics on that are helping your clients to make better investment choices? Can you give some examples?
2: Sure. Um, I mean, it's a bit like... um, if you were a you know tennis coach and you're you're a tennis coach of a of a of Roger Federer <laughs> you're going to analyze a bunch of data that is being captured about every you know swing of the racket that he takes and zoom in on each different part of that movement and each different type of of swing um, And that's basically what we're doing. But the the data that we're analyzing is to start with the historical trade data that this manager has racked up over the years of making trading decisions. And we're talking about people who, you know, they're, they're making hundreds, if not thousands of trading decisions in a given year. And some of those are about adding a name to the portfolio or taking a name out of the portfolio. But some of them are just about, you know, adding to the size of an existing position or trimming an existing position. So what we do is we say, the, the, a bit like the swing of the racket, the thing that the portfolio manager is doing over and over again is a set of uh, decision types, a picking decision about what stock, you know, why this stock and not that stock or why this stock and not the index. Um, and that's the, that picking decision tends to be where everybody focuses when they look at, at performance. But actually that's only one decision. There's also a decision about when to enter the position and how big to get and how quickly to get big. And there's adding and trimming decisions that might take place during the life of the of the position in the portfolio. And then there's a set of decisions on the way out about when to get out and how fast to get out. So we look at all of those holistically and then we zoom in on each type of decision and say, all right Let's just look at your exit timing decisions. Every exit you've ever done on any stock you've ever bought, how's that gone for you? And are there certain circumstances where you do it really well and certain circumstances where you don't do it really well? And, and what we find is that you know, people's, uh, people's behavior in the sense of exiting a, a, a position is often um, irrational on the negative side. So it reflects the sort of uh, findings in the behavioral finance literature around loss aversion and, you know, holding on to losing positions too long. And that this now is data that that proves it.
0: So are your clients, is it ever like a big eye opener for them? Uh, Is there an aha moment? Are they surprised by some of the biases that they've had in the way they've been making investment decisions that they were not aware of at all?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, most of the time I would say when we show somebody insights about their historical behavior, they say, I had a feeling I was doing that. You know, they're they're usually not a total stranger to the concept that they might be doing that, but they've never had proof and therefore never felt brave enough to stop doing that. (laughs) You know, whatever that is. Um, Sometimes you do... End up showing somebody something. Um, Maybe it's about adding and trimming. You know, people, especially professional fund managers, have a tendency to mess around with their positions once they're in them. And they have lots of reasons that they're doing it. It's not just, you know, because they have nothing better to do. There's lots of rationale. But when you take a step back and look at the analysis, often what you see is. All of that energy that you're spending on that is wasted because you're actually just destroying value. The decisions that you're making in in adding and trimming are actually destroying value versus not having made those decisions. And that I have seen come as a big surprise, Um, not to everyone, but to to certain people. I have a question
1: regarding um, the essential analytics app? Is it an actual application that people download onto their smart devices? Or is it also um, a platform where you log in online? Uh, Does it work in
2: conjunction with an application? Um, I'll start with that question, then I have a follow-up. So it's, um, there's no app. It is very much online. And it's not even the case that most of our customers log into it online. Um, So There's an analytics platform that humans at Essentia log into, and those humans are former fund managers, and their job is to understand the analytics and then come and sit down with the client and talk about what it's saying and show the client here's what it's saying. Um, And we do it that way because originally we built this app. The vision was this app. You're going to log in, and you're going to capture all this information, and it's going to be like your dossier of every. Investment you make, and at the same time tracking every little piece of data about you know what you're thinking about that investment. Um, no one ever logged in. <laughs> we huh. we found that you know, and I should have known this because I was a fund manager for many years myself. They don't want another thing to log into. They already have enough open on their desktop, and so um, they just don't do it. And they need it pushed to them, and so. To deal with that, we came up with this concept of nudges, as we call them, which are are notifications from the system. But where you know, if if I analyzed all your historical trading data and came in and sat down with you and said, "All right, here's here's what it's saying. You have a tendency to um, exit your losers too late. Like you you hold on to stocks while they're going down for too long, and then you cut them right at the bottom, and then they bounce and it's you know it's like normal human behavior unfortunately, and it's very irritating to see yourself in the mirror doing it, but once you have, then we can say, all right, how about we let you know every time you are holding a position that's been going down for you know a certain amount of time or by a certain amount it's It's more complicated than I'm making it sound, but basically, let's create a complex alert that scans your data all the time and says, "Up, oh, here's a stock that looks like it might be doing that again and that you might be holding on for too long. Not going to tell you that you have to cut it because fund managers do not like being told what to do. Uh, but what we're going to do is sort of tap you on the shoulder with an email or a text. And so then the tech, the tech interface is like super old-fashioned from that perspective, but that's because that's what we found people were willing to use You know, they all look at email and they all look at text. So, all right, we'll text you. And we're just going to say, heads up, click here. Here's a name that needs your review. And when you click on it, it's going to ask you a couple of questions that you said you wanted to be asked the next time you were in this situation. And so in that way, we're just holding themselves up up to them. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're, we're saying.
1: Holding them accountable.
2: Yeah, in their own voice. Right. And that works they they don't get nudged a lot so it's not like it's annoying intrusive right and they don't have to remember to log into anything all they have to do is click on an email and then you know sit down with their their insight partner from Essentia for an hour once a quarter Mm -hmm. and their performance improves because they are paying more attention to the right things at the right time
1: Interesting. So it almost acts as like an integration into the tools that they're already using, almost like an extension, if you will. Mm-hmm. Interesting, very interesting. So my next question or follow-up question to that is right now, the way it's set up is to um, aid fund managers. Do you see it ever growing into um, helping individual traders? you know, uh, where they don't use fund managers and they want to potentially use this service. So uh, the extension integrates into whatever platform that they use at home potentially and helps them analyze their behavior.
2: Um, So it's something we looked at when we first started on the basis that the retail market is, you know, a big market worth going after. There are lots of active traders out there who are potentially making a lot of mistakes, even more mistakes than a professional fund manager. Right. Um, So wouldn't they value this? And, And in fact, the broker platforms that they use don't want their clients to go bust. And that's what happens. Like, you know, people become active traders on these big platforms until they've run out of money because they lose it all. And that's no good to anyone. So it's not in the interest of the broker for you to run out of money and they want you to keep trading. And so they. we talked to a few of them about doing this um, as part of their platforms. And back then, uh, the, the stumbling block was about data sharing, and they weren't allowed to share client data. Um, even with a client's permission, they couldn't physically do it like the client would have to do it themselves, and it was just way too clunky. Um, but it's interesting, in the last few months, I've noticed... Uh, some of these very sort of old dyed-in-the-wool brokerage platforms are opening up their data sharing uh, in a way that they've never done before. So it suddenly piqued my interest and got me back in touch with these people to say, so, should we talk again? Because I think you're right that this is – if you're somebody who is trading actively – And you're doing it, maybe you're doing it for a living or maybe you're doing it as a hobby, but either way, you're trying to make the best decisions you can make and maximize your P&L. You need this, right? you know, you really do. So we would love to make it possible (laughs) for those people to get it.
1: Awesome, awesome.
0: So I wanted to to pivot a little bit and ask about your experience as a female entrepreneur in a pretty male-dominated industry and what kind of experience that has been for you and what kind of grit you've had to have to be successful and start your own company?
2: Um, well, so I I grew up in a male-dominated industry in the first place, and I think that's probably helped me a lot. Just fund management and banking, it's very male-dominated, always has been. I certainly experienced lots of um, things that would not be deemed acceptable in this day and age, and you know behaviors that were just normal, amongst men in, in, on trading floors back then, um, that would now be not okay. And, um, let's be honest, they weren't okay back then, but, uh, as a young woman in the industry trying to get ahead, you just had to laugh it off. You know, that was how I dealt with it. I just kept going and laughed it off and, and thought less of the people who were committing these things, you know, these acts. Um, but, I tried to keep my eye you know firmly on where I was going, and what I was trying to do was be taken seriously. Um, and that you know was eventually the case because my performance was very good. Um, I didn't start this business until I was over 40, and I think that helps a lot in that I have already a lot of credibility in my in my industry. You know, people, even if they don't know who I am, they can look me up on LinkedIn and they know people who know me and it's like, oh, she's legit. Okay. So I'm not necessarily, you know, trying to claw my way into being taken seriously in the way that I was when I was younger. Um, But there are still times when I just think, you know, I'm at a disadvantage and I need to make up for that. You know, and that's typically around funding. And raising capital and, and knowing that, at least in the, in the early years, um, people would say, VCs would say, oh, yeah, well, sometimes we do seed investments. And the reality was like, no, you don't. Sometimes you do seed investments with some guy that you already have invested with or that you already know or he's your friend's brother, you know, like whatever. But it's a guy and it's a familiar thing that you know, you're investing with something familiar. Um, and, and so that was never going to really be open to me. Um, I managed to raise money to make Ascension go through individuals uh, for, for far longer than I ever expected. But luckily, there were enough individuals in, my fund, in the fund management industry who really believed in what we were doing and who believed in me as, an, as a person who are willing to back us, uh, you know, until we got to a point where our metrics just are undeniable and then VCs get interested. You know, it's like the, you you don't get the special pass as a woman when your metrics aren't there yet that you might otherwise get. Once your metrics are there, then, you know, the numbers speak for themselves. But in the early years of of starting a company, you're trying to get to that point and, you need capital to get there,
1: claire. i I admire you so much for so many reasons. Um, you, you're so interesting to me because not only were you already in a very strong male-dominated space, but you're also in a space that isn't typically technology progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to hear what types of challenges you're faced with by investors or even early adopters of your product and how you overcame them.
2: Yeah, I mean, the fund management industry is very slow on the technology side, which is funny because it, it it's all about data. Like literally the entire industry is just a bunch of data. So you would think that it would be well-developed. When it comes to data handling and analysis and yet it's an industry that's had high margins for a really long time and it's not been particularly hungry um, to innovate and so it's just hasn't done so um, now that's all changed and and the industry is has been disrupted by uh, index funds and you know low cost alternatives and so suddenly everybody's scrambling saying oh you know we need to do something we need to get better at what we do. Um, and so that's, you know, that's good news for us. But the, the when I first started and, and this is only, the essential has been going for seven years now. Um, and I'd say only really hit its stride in the last three years. So we had four years of like, just trying to figure out what is our path? How do we make this thing uh, go from being a nice to have to a must have? Um, and we, Quite early on, we got some coverage in the Financial Times that was you know unexpected and really exciting and so um, that was a great leg up and and then somebody said, "You know, I read the article oh it's so great, send it to my parents and then somebody said, "Have you read the comments?" and I said, "No, maybe I should read the comments and I found that the comments were all full of people accusing me of Snake oil and new age hoo ha, you know, like (laughs) uh, just very uninformed opinions that made me realize oh, there are people who just reject this as different. And, mm-hmm. and are saying like she's crazy and you know she's coming up with some new age you know nonsense this is there's scary and like,
1: i don't know it you know yeah there's nothing <laughs>
2: new age about any of it i mean the behavioral finance field has been around for 50 plus years and you know three nobel prizes have been awarded in the last 10 years to economists from this space so it's not it's very much legitimate you know the basis of what we're doing and uh and yet there's always gonna be grumpy people who write and don't read the thing properly and just pass judgment and write in the comments. So I learned not to read the comments.
1: Right, I was gonna mention that. When you <laughs> mentioned comments, I was like, oh
2: no, don't go down that line. Yeah, <laughs> that was a lesson learned. <laughs> but but the, uh, one of the big learnings in the, uh, also in those, that sort of first four years was don't just let anybody be your customer. So we would get customers who were into the concept or they were intrigued by the concept, but not necessarily um, a good fit, you know, not necessarily committed to improvement. They just wanted to see some analysis. And we're all about the improvement as well as the analysis. To me, you know, showing me some analysis about my own behavior would be totally interesting but I can pretty much guarantee you that I'm not going to change my behavior on the back of it because I have habits and they're very deep seated. And as much as I intend to change them, I don't change them because it's just, I'm a human. That's what I do. If you could, you know, nudge me when I'm about to eat that extra piece of pizza or whatever the habit is (laughs) and say, not, don't tell me not to eat the pizza because that will make me eat it. But if you say to me, you know, ask me some question in my own voice about, you know, the, that I said, the next time you catch me doing this, I want you to ask me, you know, what are you wearing to your brother's wedding or, you know, whatever it is. Um, that would probably stop me. And so uh, if we took on clients, we found that if we took on clients who didn't really want to change their behavior, they weren't really open to that. They were just kind of interested mathematically that it never really went anywhere. And so you ended up doing the this very heavy data lift at the beginning where you had to upload these people's data that was messy and needed cleaning. And, you know, there was, there was a lot of work that we would put in, in the beginning. And it was only really worth doing if the client was going to stick with us for a couple of years, because at that point they would really start feeling significant value. Um, And yet, uh, If they weren't willing to do that or if they didn't meet the criteria of somebody who's likely to do that, they would, you know, take an analysis and then say, yeah, that's that's me done. I don't want anything else. And it would be a bad return on energy expended for us. So we got very picky about who our clients are and, you know, very happy to talk to anybody who's interested in it. But I'm not going to sell you anything, you know, only want to sell you something if I think you could really succeed at it. And that's made a huge difference. That's that's
0: really wise.
1: Very wise and very interesting. And you mm-hmm. took the time to figure that out, which is which is awesome because a lot of people are just – Well, I had to, well, right? Yeah, I mean, but so many people, I think, when they're in the mindset of, okay, I have a company now and I have to sell, 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 sell. You know, they don't take the time to learn those things and to, and to make those mm-hmm. decisions. And it's, there's risk involved with that, too, right?
0: It's really interesting because you're in a very conservative industry in a lot of ways. People, because they're talking about their money and their investments, they want to stick with what they know, what works, with the familiar male face, with, you know, give me lots of data, but changing my behavior that's a whole different ball of wax. And and so those were a lot of things that you had to buck, right? But somehow you found the confidence in yourself and in your product and really believed in what you were doing enough to, to push back and to push through. And I think that that's really, really interesting. And I also thought what was interesting was your comment about starting this company in midlife because for the women who are listening to our podcast, some of them are midlife women who are thinking about some sort of career pivot. And... You know, a lot of times we hear, well, you know, it's too late or your your skill set isn't where it needs to be or or um, just sort of discouragement, especially, I think, for women who want to make a, a change like that and, and do something really entrepreneurial in midlife. What would your advice be to them?
2: That they can absolutely do it and that I think it's better to start in midlife than to start as a young person. I mean, yes, you know, a 20-year-old right out of college has – a lot of energy and very little in the way of responsibilities, and so they can just throw themselves you know, into an, uh, an entrepreneurial venture in a special way, but they have no wisdom. They don't understand how the professional world works. They don't understand how customer organizations work. If you've worked in a large company at some point in your career, that's very valuable, even if you hated it. It's just valuable. <laughs> and so... I have the experience of having worked in a large company, small companies, you know, different types of, of constructs and have taken away from each one of them some things I didn't like, some things that I did like, some things where I saw that I added unique value. And I've tried to weave that all together into what I do now. And I just simply wouldn't have been able to do that when I was young. But when I started, I also would not, you know, I'm not a software developer and I, don't know how to code. Not even a little bit, (laughs) which is, you know, what I intend to do with my retirement. I plan to learn how to code. Um, That is something that I wish I knew how to do. But I don't, it didn't stop me from starting a software company because I don't actually need to know how to code. I need to know how to find great people who know how to code and, and empower them to do that well. But Mostly, I need to understand my customer and my proposition, and develop this, you know, rock hard conviction in what I'm doing. And I've been able to do that, and, and it's carried me through all sorts of ups and downs. And you know, there's a, a book that I read uh, somewhere along the way, pretty early on, called uh, The Dip by uh, Seth Godin. Uh, It's a tiny little book, but it's about the fact that when things are down, a big part of what makes the people who succeed, succeed is just perseverance, you know, and, and the conviction that the thing you're doing is valuable. And I know that what we do is valuable because it's common sense. You know, you see it in sports, you see it in the military, you see it in the operating room, having it having checklists and data-driven feedback and, you know, just the ability to see yourself in the mirror makes it possible for you to do better, you know, the next time. And that, that's just a fundamental truth. So whenever somebody told me that I was, you know, not an engineer, so I shouldn't be doing this or this is new age hoo are or whatever I, you know, I know they're wrong because Fundamentally, what we're doing makes total sense, and now you know further along in our journey, we can prove it. So it's even easier to to stay with it.
1: That's such a great message for people to hear, especially you know the fact that one, you're not a coder; um, two, that didn't stop you from entering this um, sector of your industry because there was a need. You were confident in that, and you had the foresight and common sense to put the right people in place to make everything work the way it does. Um, so I, I think that's so important for people to hear because I I, I fear um, and I hope that with this podcast, we're just trying to, to educate more, right? That you don't have to have <laughs> this mathematical engineering background in order to succeed in the tech space. Um, no, that's that, true. You know, if you have a passion and you have a vision, you create your team and move forward and conquer, um, and it can be done. So uh, that's awesome. So with that thought of educating, we hear buzzwords all the time, and we're saying this isn't just a buzzword anymore. What does fintech mean to you? For those that are, you know, they've heard that and it feels like a buzzword to them because they quasi understand it. What does that mean to you? You're in the field. How would you describe it?
2: I mean, I, it's a buzzword to me, too, and that's because it covers so many things. I mean, people talk about um, services like Betterment and Wealthfront as fintech. To me, those are not tech companies. Those are asset management companies that are empowered by a good user experience. You know, that uh, they invest more heavily in tech than a normal asset manager, but does that mean that you... You would classify it as a fintech. I don't know. personally. I would say no. Um, so my focus in fintech, because of of you know what we're up to, is on capital markets, fintech, and wealth wealth tech, as they call it. Um, you know, they start with one broad tech, and then they make mini techs that that sit under that wealth tech, insure tech, reg tech. It's
1: a big umbrella. Um,
2: yeah, <laughs> and so you know we sit sort of in the wealth tech space. Um, Although the people we're dealing with are not wealth managers. These are like, you know, your very high end fundamental uh, or institutional fund managers. Um, But uh, that space is growing rapidly. But I think that, that in wealth management and in investment management, fintech is transforming in the way the industry works. And it's taken, if we've been going for seven years and fintech it was already a thing as, an, as a term when I started, but I remember talking to a recruiter early on and she thought, I, I said to her, we're a fintech company, you know, we do this. And she thought our name was fintech. <laughs> <laughs> so it's clearly fintech was not a, that was not a common term seven years ago. Now it's, you know, like a household word. Um, and, uh, but in, in wealth management, it's going very slow, but you can see AI starting to creep into you know, automating repetitive tasks. You can see uh, longer term, there's a big opportunity for blockchain when it comes to settlement. And there's a lot about how the, the trading and uh, fund management industry works. It's just about making numbers add up, you know, making sure that everybody knows the same numbers and that nobody's in dispute about anything.
1: Well, and that everyone's in compliance, right? Because there's so right. many regulations that yes. know, control yes, that's right. what you
2: guys do. Yes. And, and you know, there's a lot there that can be automated. Mm. You know, it yes. doesn't need a human. And, in fact, a human wouldn't be able to keep track of all of this stuff. So the technology is definitely rising to the occasion as, as the uh, regulatory burden increases um, and also as the pressure on costs uh, increase, because that, that is just inevitable in this, in this industry. People are, or companies are realizing that they've got to find a way to have fewer humans. They, otherwise, you know, the margins go down too low. It's not even worth being in business. Um, so that's what they're doing. And it's starting. I think uh, there's still a very long way to go. Hey everybody, Sam McLean
1: here from InPhase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz.
2: Thanks for listening.
0: I have um, a question sort of related to that. In fintech, regardless of which vertical within that sort of umbrella industry we're talking about, we're talking about collecting a lot of valuable information and understanding it and analyzing it. And a lot of times it's sensitive information because we're talking about people's. Money at the end of the day. So, what are your insights about data privacy and data security, and any cautionary words that you would have for others in the industry based on you know the things that that you know and understand about about uh, collecting financial data and and using it to help people make better decisions?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Um, I never could have anticipated just how expensive it would be to build a a sort of industrial grade information security infrastructure (laughs) Um, and that in part that's because that definition of industrial grade is changing all the time and it's just you know every day that passes you need more data security Um, so if your plan as an entrepreneur is to deal with any kind of regulated entity but in my case banks and and you know, asset managers, yeah, get ready for <laughs> some big costs. You have a lot of work to do to make sure that you will pass muster with all of these um, internal rules that they have that are not necessarily anything to do with you or the data you're handling or the function you're providing, but are to do with what they have promised the re- their own regulator that they will do. And so they need you to conform with their regulatory situation. And that means you need to build for that from day one and you need to be clever about it, but get specialists in who who really understand it. Or you're going to find that, that no matter how much the business person you're talking to is really excited about what you've got, the information security people are going to say no. And that's very frustrating. You have to bring yourself to be very interested in information security because it it matters so much. You get it wrong once, you're out of business.
1: Right. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's such a black and white type of um, (laughs) uh, space within Mm -hmm. finance. You know, there's no gray area. Mm -hmm. So what advances in technology can we expect to see in FinTech over the next, I don't know,
2: three to five years or so? What can we expect to see that's exciting? I mean, certainly in my part of fintech, I'm focused on the AI side and we use a bit of machine learning in the context of what we do, but I wouldn't really characterize us as you know, a heavy AI company. Um, but that said, I'm, I'm really interested in what other people are doing on that front. And, and as I mentioned before, there's, there are a lot of applications for AI when it comes to just automatic, automating little annoying tasks. So it's not the AI that's going to predict the stock market and make everybody rich, right? I mean, there are people who are trying to do that and the very best of them will tell you that that is not easy and AI is not necessarily the answer to that particular uh, conundrum because the stock market is is very noisy data. It's very hard to, to predict the future based on its past. Uh, but when it comes to things like trade reconciliation, you know, where – I buy a stock from you. Now we both have to make sure our records match and, and make sure that it all is agreed by a certain date. Historically, that's people doing that and faxes and you know maybe a spreadsheets, <laughs> but that's super old fashioned and and really yes there are anomalies that turn up but there are few enough of them that it, an AI could learn that um, and and we're starting to see that. Mm-hmm. And some of the uh, fund accounting firms and the people whose job it is to do that are figuring out how to do that faster. So that it's not sexy, but it's meaningful, um, in my opinion. And and I think that's pretty cool. Um, And I think there's there's lots that's going on uh, on the user side, you know, for when it comes to. Apps on your phone and, you know, wealth management um, user interfaces have gone from being, you know, twice a year you get a letter in the mail that tells you how much money you have left in your account to, you know, an ad can check it every second Mm -hmm. of every day. And there are clever, you know, little things coming out saying uh why don't you save all the all the loose change out of every purchase you make we're going to round it up to the nearest dollar and we'll put that difference into uh you know mutual fund or etf or something like that these are these are cool uses of of technology um that are appealing to a new generation of of consumer Mm -hmm. um but i think where the really big difference is going to happen at least in the in the finance industry is the behind the scenes part, you know, the boring operational side. Um, much
1: needed yeah. though, much needed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, I, you know, I'm really excited about the uh, consumer version of essential Analytics coming out soon,
2: <laughs> three well, to five years from now. <laughs> do you know what the, the part that actually could be um, interesting is like, there's nothing saying that nudging, let's say, uh, is only applicable to investment decision-making. Like everybody has behaviors Ooh, yeah. that they want to change, right? right? And if you work with a coach, then you have a person that's holding you accountable for making these changes. And yet, even then, it's very hard to do that. And so we're actually experimenting with um, our nudges and applying them to people who have nothing to do with investment.
1: We got a sneak peek there. Yeah, there go. <laughs> yeah. It's early, but
2: it's it's very simple, but it's very effective.
1: I I just wondered, Claire, if
0: you have any apps that you know, specific apps that you recommend for people who are just getting into investing and just the consumer market that you think are good, especially I'm thinking like, you know, my daughters are starting to think about stuff like this, uh, how to invest their, what little money they have left over from their paychecks. Uh, Do you have apps that you think are really good?
2: You know, I haven't, um, because I came from this occupation in the first place and never really looked at those kinds of apps, but what I've seen, I mean, there are a zillion of them, right? There's so many. Um, and I, I couldn't necessarily recommend one above the others, but uh, what I do know is that all the big brokerage platforms, whether it's Schwab or Fidelity or, you know, TD Ameritrade or whatever, all, all of them have invested a lot of money in investor education. And so it's worth going on to any one of those platforms and having a look at what they offer, which is usually free. And they, you know, they've invested enough that it's well-produced in general. Um, And it's courses on, you know, the stock market, how does it work? What is, what should you be thinking about in making investment decisions? You can play games and practice and, you know, run pretend portfolios and that type of thing. Um, I think if one of my Uh, my kids are are still a bit young for it, but once they hit the age where they're interested, that's what I'll probably guide them to.
1: Oh my gosh, please do. Because, you know, I always thought growing up and education is changing, hopefully for the better, especially for our next generation. Um, There wasn't enough when it came to investing when it came to real life applications of money, Agreed. saving, mm-hmm. you know, you go, you think of, you're going to have to pay rent or mortgage. Mm-hmm. you got to live somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. How much to save for your retirement how much and things that you should start thinking about at an early stage, because the earlier you start, the mm-hmm. more you accrue and there's just not enough out there in school. And that's something you should learn in school because it's a basic mm-hmm. life skill. And yeah. I just don't think there's enough.
2: Yeah, I agree. And and some of the commercial banks have done a good job, like Barclays in the UK. I don't know if they've done it over here, but they've made this a, a big initiative to try to educate young people and, and school-age kids uh, on how to be responsible with money and also how to be responsible online, which is also sorely needed. Um, and I think, well, the jury's out on whether it's it's working it, it's like it needs not just telling, but also um, internalizing. And and so, yeah, I'd like to think that some of the games and, and, you know, the gamification that's going on in some of these apps and education programs helps people to internalize it, at least practice it, you right. know, as opposed to just listening and maybe taking some notes and then going home.
1: Right sure engagement and practice is i think key claire we um have had such a great time talking to you today we've learned so much um and again i just think you're such an inspiration to so many and um you have your life experience kids serve as uh A lesson to a lot of people in so many good ways. So um, thank you for for joining us today. We have a lightning round of questions that we ask all of our guests is to get to know you better as just a human. Um, So we're going to dive into that now.
2: Okay.
1: Okay. So the first thing we want you to do for us is finish this sentence. Women are
2: worth listening to
1: yes yeah love that okay Claire what are three pieces of advice that
0: you would give your younger self
2: uh well the first one would be to don't take any of it personally and just keep your eye on the prize um the second one would be if you don't ask you don't get so stand up for yourself I I was guilty of not doing that a lot earlier in my career um, and the third one is probably be nicer to your mother because you're going to be thanking her later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is a great one. All right. What is your current favorite application of tech for good? And it can be in any space.
2: Well, so for me, tech for good is tech that empowers humans to do good, right? And mm-hmm. it's been really interesting to see how The technology that we use every day, and and even sometimes talk about as evil, um, has been used for a lot of good, especially during this pandemic uh, crisis. So, you know, whether that's social media enabling civilians to support healthcare workers and make you know masks in their home and then Mm -hmm. give them out. I mean, Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and all the rest have played a big role in, in mobilizing people to help each other, which is. Amazing.
1: Um, Well, it's been the one thing that's kept us connected, right? Yeah. This whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And uh,
2: you know, the fact is, governments, at least in this country, have not been able to to do the you know to solve the problem by themselves. Has not been able to support the healthcare industry the way it needs, and so the rest of us are saying, okay, let us help. You know, and and stepping up to that. Um, we've been able to because we're all connected through this technology. So that's been great. And then I also think about things like Zoom and FaceTime and, you know, video chat apps that have brought families together. I mean, I I say I should be nicer to my mother. I would tell my my younger self that I'm closer to my mother than I've ever been before um, because I talk to her more frequently because we're both home and we're both on FaceTime and she's now, an expert in (laughs) video chat. It took a while, but she's there now. You know, there are a lot of people in my life who have not been up for being on video up until now. And, and now that they are, our relationships are going to a different level just because we can see each other, you know? Yeah. And, and people are making the effort to get on zoom calls with their old friends or with their, you know, family or whoever it is. Um, I think that's good for the world. You know, so the tech wasn't wasn't created to be, you know, for good, but it is bringing good. Definitely.
1: What
0: issue do you most hope that technology will resolve in the future?
2: I think it's hunger. You know, I'm not massively hopeful about the hunger situation in the near term. Um, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better in the world. But... um, I love seeing things about drones that can deliver medicine or food or whatever it is to people in very remote areas and technologies that are that are bringing people who um, have very little into the, that larger net that we're all already a part of. Um, and I think that technology will solve this problem eventually. I hope so anyway.
1: What inspires you?
2: Uh the thing that inspires me most is probably human kindness. You know, I look around and see a lot of that going on right now, but even in, in you know, less obvious times. Um, yeah, it's something I admire and I aspire to more of myself.
1: I love that.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you want to learn more about? And it can be anything. It doesn't have to be in the tech space.
2: Uh, my default is coding I want to I have an eight-year-old that is learning Python and as much as I'm the one who's pushing that forward it kills me that (laughs) he's learning that and I'm not so
1: well he can teach you
2: yeah he can teach me (laughs) I'm gonna need
1: it describe the future in one word different definitely different it certainly will be
0: Okay. Last one. Fill in the blank, blank, like a girl.
2: Manage people like a girl. That's been a key to my success. I manage my team like the woman that I am and they love working for us. Something's working about that. And it's about empathy and it's about, you know, respect. But I think it's... It comes from my femininity.
1: We're magical. Bottom line, <laughs> so I agree. <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you so much for this pleasant conversation and just so interesting. Um, again, I I am just the first one to admit that I don't know much about um, fintech at all, and just uh, hearing your insights and hearing your journey. Um, has been so special. So thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. Where can people connect with you and find you online?
2: If you're interested in anything you you just heard about behavioral analytics or fintech, um, our website is uh, www.essentia, which is like essential, but without the L, essentia-analytics.com. And we have lots of uh, free white papers and blog posts and things that are hopefully interesting to you. If you want to reach out to me directly, um, I'm on Twitter at, at C Flynn Levy, uh, or I'm on LinkedIn. Just ping me. I'm always happy to talk. Awesome.
1: Just, I, I want to
0: thank you again so much for your time today. It's been so interesting.
2: It was a real pleasure.
0: Hi everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of we get real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good.